Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season nine, episode nine, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2009 horror comedy, Jennifer's Body. It was written by Diablo Cody and directed by Corinne Kusama. The film stars Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried, J.K. Simmons, and Adam Brody. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and you watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you please read us the plot summary? Sure. Although they couldn't be more different, teenagers Jennifer and Needy have been best friends since early childhood. On a night out at the local bar to see an indie boy band called Low Shoulder, a mysterious fire starts and burns down the venue. The two friends escape, but Jennifer is reluctantly taken by the band to go party, leaving a suspicious and worried Needy behind. Later that night, Jennifer shows up at Needy's home, looking worse for wear and acting strange. And by strange, I mean screaming like a demon vomiting up black liquid, and eating the local teenage boys. (laughs) Will Needy figure out what's going on with her best friend before it's too late, or will Jennifer run amok and kill all the boys in town? Amok! Amok, 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 (laughs) amok. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the production of this film (laughs) oh my goodness so according to the wikipedia page dedicated to the film quote jennifer's body is the follow-up to writer and producer diablo cody and jason reitman's collaboration efforts on juno unquote and with an interview with sheila roberts quote cody stated that when writing the script she was simultaneously trying to pay tribute to some of the conventions that we've already seen in horror yet at the same time turn kind of turn them on their ear. One of her influences from the 1980s horror genre was the film The Lost Boys. She wanted to honor that, and at the same time, she had never really seen this particular subgenre done with girls, and she tried to do a little bit of both. Despite this, she said she had noticed that the last survivor standing in the typical horror film is a woman, and that because of this, she feels horror has always had kind of a feminist angle to it, in a weird way, and at the same time, it's kind of delightfully exploitative. Jennifer's body could play on both of these aspects, unquote. Um, I just want to add something here. I think it's interesting that she based this off of the Lost Boys, um, because this, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but this movie is almost a carbon copy of Ginger Snaps. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I thought, too. Which came out, what, eight, nine or eight years before. Yeah. Which is interesting. But Cody, I don't think, is a huge horror fan. Right. So I can see her 
creating this screenplay and not knowing about Ginger Snaps, especially since Ginger Snaps was not really known to people who really weren't into horror movies. Mm-hmm. Right. I know we're still in the production aspect of this, but I kind of want to mention that I just think it's interesting that when you when you're creating horror for women and friendships are involved, there is this shadow self imagery in it Mm -hmm. where the women are not against each other, but they are, they're trying to, they are kind of battling each other in a sense. Right. And I just thought that was an interesting observation that, when you have horror between really good friends or sisters or possibly lovers that you are dealing with like this type of drama in the horror. Yeah. That, and there's also that like shadow of like, (laughs) especially with two women, like erotica or like kind of this like gay undertone also like I, right. I feel like you can't have just a platonic competitive relationship there's always some kind of like gayness to it well my thing with that is again we're we're, we're just diving right into discussion which i think is really funny <laughs> i know <laughs> um i think like a, an interesting example of a of a relationship, a friendship that doesn't actually start out as a friendship. There's such there's such a, a trope, though, to put women against women, either for the love of the same... Like, it's like a love triangle, right? Usually women mm-hmm. are, are in these weird love triangles, and they are put against each other for the love of a boy. Like, I think a, a good recent example is... this. I think it's the second season of Stranger Things, where Eleven, I don't remember anyone's names, but Eleven is upset that the the new girl, Max, I think is her name, mm-hmm. um, is like kind of hanging out with Mike and mm. she tries to hurt her. She like tries to take the, the skateboard from under her. And I remember watching that and being like, you've got to be fucking joking. Like, <laughs> I was like, "We are we do really doing this with, like, a TV show with children? Like, it's so, it's like, not even, like, with adults even. Like, even shows with children. Right. The women are being put against each other, and it's really toxic. And they kind of fixed it in the third season. I think they got a lot of complaints about that. And they were best buds in that season. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I see Jennifer's body, again, we're going to talk more about this later, but when I see it, I see two women who are in love who are afraid to admit that they're in love yes because of homophobia so part of the horror in this is the fear of not being able to be together because the very first thing somebody says to them in the film is you guys are are lesbian gay yeah yeah that girl says and it's like and needy's like no like she's really defensive about it (laughs) Yeah, so it's actually kind of sad. This movie is actually really sad, but I'm a little bit more lenient with this one because they are not related, unlike Ginger Snaps, where they are sisters. Right. But there is a strong erotic subtext. Yes. In that film as well, but they are related. This one, they are not, and there is a really strong subtext in this too possibly even text 
Yes. <laughs> Which we'll talk about. But anyway, um, let us know what you all think <laughs> on our social media. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, please. <laughs> Okay, so um, for so for those of you who aren't Courtney Love fans or don't know anything about the band Hole, uh, Diablo Cody is a fan, and um, you might not have realized this, but the film's title is based on a Hole song with the same name. And um, I just want to share with you some of the lyrics from the song, and um, you might recognize some key subtext in them. Um, So some of the lyrics go, my better half has bitten me. It's bettering you. It's bettering me. Sleeping with my enemy, myself, myself. The pieces of Jennifer's body found pieces of Jennifer's body. You're hungry, but I'm starving. He cuts you down from the tree. He keeps you in a box by the bed, alive, but just barely. So that explained the entire movie. You're not wrong. And it's incredibly creepy. It's so yes, creepy. It's <laughs> super creepy. Okay, so according to Jennifer Kwan, quote, Cody said she wanted to film, she wanted the film to speak to female empowerment and explore the con- complex relationships between best friends. Director Karin Kusama and I are both outspoken feminists, she said. We wanted to subvert the classic horror model of women being terrorized. I want to write roles that service women. I want to tell stories from a female perspective. I want to create good parts for actresses where they're not just accessories to men. Addressing the male-dominated horror genre, Cody said, quote, a key reason for writing the film was to bring to the screen a new way of expressing the intensity of female bonds and that the adolescent female friendships she experienced were unparalleled in their intensity. She wanted to show the almost horrific aspect of such devotion and its relation to parasitism. Cody stated, there's the scene where Jennifer's sitting alone smearing makeup on her face. I always thought that was such a sad image. She's so vulnerable and I don't know any woman who hasn't had a moment sitting in front of the mirror and thinking, help me, I want to be somebody else, unquote. That's probably one of my favorite scenes in Mm -hmm. the film too. Is where she's sitting in front of her vanity and putting makeup on, and she looks like she's about to burst into tears. Oh my god, it's so sad. So clearly, Cody and Kusama deeply cared for these characters and how they were represented in the film. So of course, the male marketing producers had to ruin it. Uh, according to BuzzFeed News, quote, Kusama and Cody realized their film was in trouble well before it hit theaters in September 2009. During the marketing phase of post-production, the pair discovered the movie in which Mousy Needy learns that her best friend Jennifer has been possessed by a man-eating demon was not being accurately depicted in the ad campaign. While Kusama and Cody had wanted to make a movie for young women, specifically teen girls like Needy and Jennifer, Jennifer's bodies, trailers, and posters seemed suited only to attracting a young, straight male audience. And when Kusama asked for an explanation behind another ad that was fixated on Jennifer's hotness, she and Cody received a reply that still lives in infamy for the screenwriter. The email, quote, wasn't even grammatically correct, unquote. (laughs) Cody, Cody noted. She said the response was, Jennifer sexy, she steal your boyfriend, as if a caveman had written it. So this is really interesting to me because the film is called Jennifer's Body, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you are 
uh, an uncultured swine, you might <laughs> you might hear that title and think it is about a sexy woman and it's about how she uses her body to attract men and take over her and blah blah blah. I think it's the opposite. I think this is about uh, I think this is a movie about people fixating on her body mm-hmm. and using her body and using it for their own gain. And then she switches that and then takes it and uses it to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think it's interesting that even the marketing people couldn't figure that out. And we're going to talk more about that later. But I also remember seeing an interview with Cody and Megan Fox about the film and I think it might have been for E.T. and anyway um, Cody said that she did the audience preview and like one of the feedback notes she got from an audience member was needs more boobs (laughs) and boobs was spelled B-E-W-B-Z Ew! Stop it! So this is the type of people that they were dealing with all right, you friggin' neckbeard, get out of here. <laughs> I think it was like a teenage boy. Ew. Yeah. Gross. Teenage boys. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Fox said that while filming her highly anticipated kissing scene with Seafred, that Seafred was extremely uncomfortable, but that she herself was not. Fox said, I feel much safer with girls, so I felt more comfortable kissing her than kissing any of the other people that I had to kiss. Seifert's uneasiness in the scene caused giggling fits between takes, and she agreed that Fox, with Fox, that she was uneasy about acting out the scene, and she said it was her first time doing a real kissing scene with a woman, and it was really weird, and a woman's smell is soft and florally, and maybe the pheromones were different, and it just was really uncomfortable for her. So... I guess it's safe to say that we know that Seafried is very straight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is fine. But we're all we're gonna talk about that kiss later, don't you all fucking worry. <laughs> okay, so the film earned a disappointing two point eight million on its opening Friday and six point eight million its opening weekend at the North American box office. In total it earned just over thirty one million. So it wasn't really a success. Mm. Uh, According to Constance Grady, quote, Jennifer's body had the misfortune to premiere in 2009, right at the height of simultaneous cultural backlash to Diablo Cody, who wrote the smart, sad, hyper-stylized screenplay, and Megan Fox, who stars as the titular Jennifer, and her body in what would have been a career-making turn. In 2009, fresh off her Oscar win for Juno's screenplay, Cody was considered a a gimmicky one-hit wonder who was way too precious with her made-up slang, and Fox was considered a vapid Maxim girl, best qualified to wash a car in a bikini in the Transformers movies. So when Jennifer's body came out, there was a ready-made narrative waiting for it. The script was trying too hard. It was too sexualized, or maybe not sexy enough. It was a trashy, empty B-movie with delusions of grandeur. But the honest truth is Jennifer's body is not really a sexy movie in the way that I that it was advertised. It's much weirder and much more unsettling than that." Unquote. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Ugh. so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes a few times between Jennifer and Needy, even though a lot of their conversations do revolve around boys. 
Um, let's go to Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, it actually just misses it. <sighs> Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Yes, the film was written and directed by two different women, and also it was edited by a woman, uh, Plummy Tucker. Oh. Yeah. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No, but Karin Kusama is uh, Asian American, and I don't want to overlook the fact that she is a woman of color who directed this. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Um, well, like we mentioned earlier, there's some strong queer subtext, and mm. some would argue that it is just text in the film. Uh, and don't worry, like I said earlier, we will be discussing it. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about rape, revenge, and the hashtag MeToo movement in Jennifer's body. So according to Constance Grady, Jennifer's body reads very differently post-hashtag MeToo. Quote, the central mystery of Jennifer's body is the question of what happened to Jennifer in the van with the band. While we don't find out the answer until close to the end of the movie, it's framed from the beginning as a potential sexual assault. Needy describes the van's van as one of those white molester vans with no windows. And the first time we see Jennifer after she returns, she's covered in blood and bruises and has a dazed, vacant expression on her face, as though she's just experienced something horrifically traumatic. Mm. And eventually, Jennifer tells us what really happened to her. The band drove her into the woods, tied her up, and sacrificed her to Satan in a bid for fame and fortune. But because Jennifer wasn't a virgin, the sacrifice went wrong, and it ended with her becoming possessed by a demon and craving human flesh. In a post-hashtag MeToo world, the implications of the storyline look uncomfortably familiar. It's the story of a group of powerful men sacrificing a girl's body on the altar of their own professional advancement. And it's also the story of them using her torment as a bonding activity. Jennifer's body is not a sex fantasy. It's a revenge fantasy, unquote. Mm, yes. And I love that Constance brings up the fact that Jennifer is sacrificed for the the band's own professional gain like for a lot of women that work in professional settings this is an all too common reality and they're disposable to these like power hungry men here obviously that looks a little bit different because we're dealing with like teenagers and college age kids but in a way it's like an introduction to when that starts happening in the life of a young woman like in high school, girls are seen as conquests. And then in college, this predatory behavior is sadly very common on college campuses as, you know, young women and men start to gain more perspectives on, like, sex and power. And then into adulthood, those perspectives don't just go away and women end up at the losing end. And I definitely think that it's an important thing to think about when you're watching this film. And I think that having this band be an indie rock band that actually kind of sucks, like their music sucks. <laughs> it's so bad. It is. It's great. It, I mean, it's not great. That's the thing. It's, it's awful. And so it's wonderful that it's awful because I think it makes it hilarious, but it also makes the sacrifice more upsetting. Yeah. Like, 
they know that they suck and instead of like maybe changing their image or sound or whatever they take the easy way out and they take advantage of a young woman Mm, yeah and i don't think i can recall a scarier scene than the one where jennifer is in the van and she knows that they are going to hurt her Mm -hmm. that scene gets me every time because i think i think we've all sort of been there yeah in some situation where we're like I'm I might not get out of this alive or I'm not going to come out of this unscathed at least right and Megan Fox is excellent in this scene like you really really feel scared for her I think and it's also interesting that even though she survives she's still damned right yeah like she returns as a succubus but it's sort of like becoming a werewolf right like in ginger snaps she doesn't really have control over her hunger for these men and um like I said, like, this film gets compared to Ginger Snaps quite often and for good reason. So, like, check out our episode about Ginger Snaps if you like to kind of hear that side of things. But I think it's interesting that no matter what, whether Jennifer was a virgin or not, she still loses. Yep. Because she would either be dead or now she's damned. So it's like, what's worse, I guess. You know, I guess it's she loses and it's awful because she's a woman. Yeah. A little background on what a succubus is because that's what she turns into. Um, <laughs> I love how we quote Wikipedia, but um, <laughs> Wikipedia know. has definitely become more, I think, more re- of a reliable source, especially now that you can find the source on Wikipedia. Yes, definitely. It's credible. <laughs> but I love how in this film, they're like, of course it's true. It was on Wikipedia. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I laughed because I was like, every time I say, according to the page... On Wikipedia, I was like, someone's going to make that joke. So I'm making it first. (laughs) Nice. Um, So a succubus is a demon or supernatural entity in folklore in female form that appears in dreams to seduce men, usually through sexual activity. According to religious traditions, repeated sexual activity with a succubus can cause poor physical or mental health and even death. Oh, Succubi originated in Jewish folklore, apparently, but there are other versions from different cultures and religions, including Buddhism and pre-Islamic Arabia. So Jennifer is an actual succubus, but going back to this being a rape-revenge film, I want to draw comparisons between her and Medusa. Ooh. And just in case y'all don't know, here's a very brief telling of the Medusa myth. Medusa was raped by Neptune slash Poseidon, and Athena, who got all victim blamey, was angered by this and turned Medusa's hair into snakes and made her quote-unquote ugly. And anyone who looked upon Medusa would turn to stone. Okay, so according to Mackenzie Schwark, quote, as the Medusa myth is retold in a patriarchal and male-dominated society, the fact that she was a victim of rape is overshadowed by her terrifying appearance and ability to turn men into stone. This retelling sweeps the original violence against Medusa under the rug to center the violence she commits against men. And according to Christabel Hastings for Vice, quote, in her 1975 manifesto, The Laugh of Medusa, The feminist theorist Hélène Sixou asserts that men created the monstrous legacy of Medusa through fear of female desire. If, she argued, they dared to look at the Medusa straight on, they would see that she is not deadly, she's beautiful, and she's laughing. By documenting their experiences, Sixou wrote, Women can 
deconstruct the sexist biases that portray the female body as a threat. After centuries of silence, conversations about rape culture began to restore Medusa's voice, unquote. So not only is Jennifer a succubus version of Medusa, taking monstrous revenge on men and those that have wronged her, um, but we can get meta about this whole thing. And uh, kind of like going off what I said earlier, that people didn't quite understand the title of the film. Outside the film, the marketing producers of Jennifer's Body treated the character of Jennifer like the patriarchal storytellers throughout the years treated the story of Medusa. Mm, That is a really amazing point. I also think that it's interesting that... Jennifer says to her victims, like, I need you scared, I need you hopeless, and, like, things along these lines to instill fear, but they are distracted by her beauty and the fact that they're about to get laid by the hottest girl in school, (laughs) so the ultimate form of revenge is becoming more powerful than her attackers, and, like, by all accounts, she absolutely should have died, or at least, like, shouldn't want anything to do with men. However, her hunger for guys goes from, like, wanting that attention here and there to becoming, like, absolutely ravenous. And she's not afraid of men, but she wants them to be afraid of her. Yeah, and I want to add, I think Jennifer's want for attention from men is superficial. Yeah. She knows that she's pretty. Like, she's a very self-aware person. Mm-hmm. And she knows that guys will give her what she wants because she's pretty. And she uses her beauty and her sexuality as sort of like a means of currency for, like, really simple things like free drinks and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't love or care for any of these men. She loves needy. And, like, we're going to talk more about that later, but... Um, go ahead. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. So since we touched on the hashtag Me Too movement in this section, I also want to point out something else, and that is male victimization. And the first time we find out what Jennifer truly is, she kills a football player in the woods, <laughs> and he's screaming at the top of his lungs while his teacher just obliviously is like, Ah, uh, yeah, let it out. Like, <laughs> he's like, oh, these poor kids. And this kind of paints a picture of what it's like for a lot of male sexual assault victims, especially at that age. And I definitely, like, laughed at the scene because it's so horrific. And it's, it's like, the teacher is meant to be, like, some kind of comedic relief or whatever. But, I mean... It's actually really sad, and unfortunately, it's an eerie reflection of the cries for help that some men display after they've been assaulted, and by the time people acknowledge it, it's too late, and they've become victims in more ways than one. And I know that this film, like, really centers on the female perspective of that, because it's very important, but, I mean, it also kind of serves as, like, a kind of duality when it comes to like assault and sexual assault and that kind of thing. So I thought that was really interesting that that was included in the film too. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think it's also interesting that this guy, at least the first guy didn't seem like a bad guy. Right. He was like crying. He was sad for his friend who died. I know. But 
I mean, if you've seen Promising Young Woman, which is a problematic film in its own right, mm. um, <laughs> you can argue, are all men, like, garbage? Like, do they deserve... You know, so it's just, like, interesting that it's, right. like, you kind of have this, yeah, like, this duality of it, and you, you're like, well, do these guys deserve it like they haven't done anything wrong technically so right it's uh yeah it's interesting let us know on our social media what y'all think of that um but i think that is something that is missing from most rape revenge films Mm -hmm. and that is male victimization um we never see it and if we do um it's rare it is rare and it happens in the real world unfortunately and um you know, I am a bit upset that Jennifer's first victim is a man of color. Oh, yeah. And he's also sort of used as a joke as well, the exchange student. Yep. Yeah, so that kind of sucks. Um, Unfortunately, Diablo Cody um, does not have a really good track record of using people of color. Mm. And I don't know if, like, I mean... I don't know. It's I don't know much about it. I just feel like even in Juno, which the girl in Juno is also in this film, she plays the very kind of snotty uh, girl who like tells them about the Wikipedia thing and then calls them lesbians and stuff. She's (laughs) in Juno, but she kind of plays a stereotypical Asian where she has she she speaks in broken English and it's really kind of racist. Oh, yeah. So I have a problem with that. So that's a little unfair, but. Anyway, as always, let us know what you think. <laughs> we want to we want you to get in on this conversation. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about female friendship and queerness in Jennifer's body. We talked about this earlier. <laughs> yes, we did. Because we couldn't <laughs> help it. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about it more now. So according to the BBC, Jennifer's body isn't in fact about a demonic cheerleader or about Fox stripping. It's about the relationship between Jennifer and Needy. Sandbox love never dies, says Needy early on in the film. Ah, oh, sandbox love. I love it. It's so cute. <laughs> it's super cute, actually. So according to the Takes video essay about modern female friendships in film and television, quote, it's only in the last few decades that female friendship stories as a whole have become more complex and dynamic. Now the best friend is no longer on the sidelines. Instead, she often serves as the most important person in the protagonist's life. Instead of showing friends competing, there's a greater emphasis on women aggressively uplifting each other. Many contemporary depictions also show female friends actively calling each other out, pushing each other to do better. In many ways, the female friendship has become the love narrative of our time. Many characters explicitly use romance language to describe their story's central friendship. Like romances, female friendship stories channel obsessive or sometimes even destructive pull of a friend who utterly captivates us, unquote. So according to this video essay, portrayals of female friendships are often borderline non-platonic romances. And 
I off and I think that's clear that Jennifer and Needy are not just really close friends riding that border between platonic friendship and romantic partners. I think they genuinely have romantic and sexual feelings for each other from the very beginning. All right, listen. I called this so early. <laughs> and at first I was a little disappointed because I was like, oh no, like I hope this doesn't become tropey, but honestly, I was rooting for the lesbian relationship by, like, the middle of the film. I was like, all right, can you please just, like, have sex with each other already? Like, you're killing us. <laughs> well, and you know, I think it would only be tropey if it didn't feel genuine. Mm-hmm. And I personally feel like it is very genuine. It's yes. written genuine in the film. Yep. And according to Valeska Hexpot, quote, Jennifer's body is a love story. It is not a love story between Needy and Chip, the film's only official couple. It is not a love story between Jennifer and any of her male victims. It is a love story between Needy and Jennifer. And this fact is glaringly obvious, not only in terms of subtext, but text as well. In my opinion, Karin Kusama and Diablo Cody created a remarkable queer horror film that rings true to me in ways not often found in mainstreamish films and also serves to combat bisexual erasure and highlight the complexities of sexual desire, unquote. Uh, okay, so let's discuss this more because I completely agree with Valeska. Mm -hmm. I mean... Megan Fox has stated that she read Jennifer as a closeted lesbian and intentionally played her that way in the film. And if you know that going in, you can totally see that. The yes. way that she like touches Needy and the way that she looks at Needy and then like how she looks at Chip even stuff. You can definitely see like what is going on in Jennifer's head through those scenes. And it's brilliant. Oh, yeah. And, like, I th truly think that she is in love with Needy and vice versa. And I think Jennifer's jealousy towards boring old Chip <laughs> is not because he takes her friend away, but it's because he's a romantic threat. Yes. She says things that are, like, really snotty, like, about them, their sexual life. Yeah. Like, she's jealous. And not, like I said, not just jealous because it's her friend, but jealous because she wants to be the one having sex with her. Yes. Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> the, the drama. The drama. <laughs> Valeska Hexpot goes on to say, quote, Jennifer's is also the first image we see in the yearbook used to structure the opening montage, underscoring her incredible importance to Needy. In what amounts to a sly wink to the audience, the song that plays under this sequence is I'm Not Going to Teach Your Boyfriend How to Dance With You by the band Black Kids. The chorus contains the lyric, you are the girl that I've been dreaming of ever since I was a little girl. I fucking love this song so much. This soundtrack slaps. It's so good. Yes. It is. <laughs> Valeska goes on to say, this is no coincidence. A fellow student actually accuses Needy and Jennifer of being lesbians at this point, which Needy refutes. But how many women have been in the same position and denied same-sex romantic feelings? I mean... This is high school after all, and a small town high school at that. 
Sexuality in America is commonly fraught with danger, shame, and secrecy due to widespread and ongoing ripples of influence stemming from conservative and repressive religiosity. Unquote. Mm. Okay. There's also a really great video essay by Cherry Bepsi that's linked in the show notes. And y'all, it's great. So make sure you watch it. Um, and it's about Jennifer and Needy's romantic love for each other. And the host, whose name is Mandeep, talks about how American women usually don't have their sexualities figured out until high school or later. Yeah. While men usually have it figured out by, I think they said, elementary school. Whoa. Yes. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the fact that the the story of these two women who are confused about their sexual feelings for each other rings true in the real world. Definitely. Because they would be kind of questioning everything or or trying to figure things out at this point realistically. Yeah. So Valeska also makes a great observation here, quote, in Needy's monologue at the opening of the film, she talks about people who write her letters praying for her and telling her to ask God for forgiveness. Ostensibly, these letters are referring to the crimes which she has committed, but this scene could also be read as reminiscent of religious bigotry against same-sex desire. Mm. Needy also reveals that she gets letters from quote-unquote perverts, while unwanted sexual attention from men is so extraordinarily common as to be arguably the norm Queer women, in particular, are more often threatened with sexual violence as a means to straighten them out. Unquote. <sighs> and I think that that's a genius observation by Valeska. Queer female sexual relationships are fetishized often by straight cisgendered men. Yeah, 100%. And so... Little side story here. Like, I used to work with someone who loved this movie so much. And this person was gay. And I was always like, oh, man, like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, little tiny baby me who didn't have a lot of experience in the world was just like, I haven't seen this movie. It probably sucks. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever. So Yeah, because the, the marketing told you that. Yes, exactly. So at the time, I didn't think that this movie was important. And I thought it was just, like, this ridiculous teen horror comedy. But upon watching it now that I'm older, I was like, oh, duh. Like, there really weren't any films like this that existed with strong queer contexts that really underline what that feeling is. Like, to be in love with your best friend of the same sex. And I feel kind of bad for brushing this film off for so long because it is so important in that way. And I really do think that Diablo Cody did such a magnificent job of highlighting those feelings and fears of being stuck in that small town and not knowing what the fuck to do about your sexuality. Like, oh, it's just so brilliantly done. And like the people in Devil's Kettle, I am like, Oh man, this is like this is kind of like the town where I grew up. Like, it's very close-minded and like. And I there's one bar that's super dingy. <laughs> yeah, and you I and can... I grew up in grew up in two different towns, but they were they were close to each other. Oh and yeah, they were very similar in that sense. Yes, <laughs> there yes. There's one bar. It was gross as a <laughs> af. 
<laughs> that was it. That was in all the and all the high school dropouts and all of the guys who who couldn't leave town for whatever reason they hung out there. Yep. Oh my god. I think a lot of people didn't really give this film the attention that it deserved at the time of its release because like of the advertising obviously and but like it's amazing what advertising does to your brain even after you see a film yes because i saw this film after it came out i think it was my senior year of college i liked it but i was so caught up in the marketing for it that i felt guilty for liking it and Mm. i felt like a bad baby feminist so i never talked about it yeah again basically and if i did i didn't praise it for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> even like, though eh. I even though I watched it, like the the advertising didn't deter me. I watched it, but I still felt like I shouldn't like this. Yeah. It's interesting. Like and a I guilty myself, pleasure movie almost. Yeah, and I told myself so often that it wasn't a good movie, so I believed it. Um, but watching it now as like a 32-year-old woman, I'm like what the frick was I thinking? <laughs> because, yeah, like, it does have problems, but as a whole, it's a gorgeous piece of horror cinema. Yes. So you're not alone in this. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> um, and we'll talk more about Jennifer's body's redemption in a bit, but um, I want to mention um, a quote from Emily Jacobson. They say, uh, Needy clearly has feelings for Jennifer that go beyond friendship. Her relationship with Jen- with her boyfriend appears to be dull and unexciting. The scene just before the makeout one is a sex scene between Needy and Chip, undercut with Jennifer's date with Colin. The sex scene is awkward and not passionate, especially as Needy begins to see Jennifer's demon form in one of the boys she killed. Clearly, Needy is not interested in Chip during this moment, which is made even more apparent when the very next scene is her making out with Jennifer, unquote. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> and the Cherry Bepsi uh, video essay mentions this too. And Mandeep also noticed it um, and mentions that the editing in that scene makes it look like Jennifer and Needy are actually the ones having sex. Yes. Oh, my God. And there's that other thing like, who are you thinking of when you're having sex? <laughs> Like, Mm -hmm. the person that you're having sex with or someone else. I mean, I also love it when Chip is like, is it because I'm too big? Like, no, you you freaking dingus. It's because I'm gay. (laughs) So, disclaimer, I don't think Chip is actually a dingus. He is such a sweet boy and I love his character so much. It's like... He just is very nice. So <laughs> he he is. He's a a sweet boy, but his girlfriend's gay. That's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the hypersexual hypersexualization and Megan Fox. So according to Constance Grady, in part we can blame the marketing, which leaned heavily on the idea that Megan Fox was hot. The movie's poster featured Fox in a miniskirt and tank top doing a leg-emphasizing pose on a chair with hell yes scrawled on the blackboard behind her. (laughs) In trailers and interviews, the publicity team hyped up the idea that Fox and Seyfried were going to kiss. 
If you knew anything about Jennifer's body when it came out in 2009, it was probably that it was going to give you a chance to see Megan Fox being sexy, unquote. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, okay, but here's the other thing about this. I feel like this is a commentary on what happens to sexual assault victims in some cases. Like, hypersexualization can occur in young victims because of the trauma caused by the assault and then the aftermath. And uh, for many victims, this behavior becomes the norm after a traumatic experience. So according to an article that I found on Psychology Today, um, the causes of hypersexual behavior are not well understood. Some children or adolescents may engage in increased or developmentally inappropriate sexual behavior as a result of traumatic experiences, stressors, or mental illness. So, while there is no standard definition of hypersexuality in children, it is known that sexually abused children may display increased sexual behaviors and high-risk sexual behavior. And it's associated with sociodemographic factors such as family dysfunction and social stress. So it's important to consider the role culture plays in the concept of hypersexuality. Cultures that view sexuality in a more positive light may have values that don't judge sexual behavior as being, like, quote-unquote, excessive. So... Really, Jennifer's need for attention could stem from a lot of stuff. Like, we know that she's living with a single mom, and Needy brings up her eating disorders and sort of, like, the dark corners of her past. So, we can grasp that this girl has a lot going on in the background that probably doesn't help her current situation. But another thing that I'd like to point out is that it's a sign of victimization, so, culturally, we see hypersexuality and automatically think, like, okay, she's a slut. Like, she'll get what's coming to her. Like, that's been the narrative for a really, really long time. And luckily, we're kind of, like, phasing out of that. Um, but it is rarely the case that someone is just a slut, if ever, because, like, have sex however much you want, like, with whoever. Am I right? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. so there yeah, are... Like, what does it matter, really? Yeah, exactly. So, as long as everybody is, like, safe and consenting. Consensual, and, yeah. Yeah. Consen- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, there are a lot of layers to Jennifer. She's not just a shallow character. Just like Mm-mm. we all... Like, and it's so funny because we all learned that Megan Fox is not actually a shallow person. She was dragged through the mud by Michael Bay after the whole, like, Transformers bullshit. So, those are weird parallels, but it's a topic for another podcast. Like, (laughs) an anti-Michael Bay Transformers podcast. (laughs) I almost want to talk a little bit more about it here, though. Because Jennifer and Megan Fox are very similar yes yes their character like the character of jennifer and the real megan fox are almost scarily similar yeah and megan fox has watched i think it was that same interview with et where she was watching interviews old interviews that she had done from years ago when she was a teenager and and when she was doing this film and you could see she's sad 
watching these interviews. Oh, yeah. Like, she looks sad. And after one of them, she says, I wish I could hug that girl. Oh. Yeah, I almost like I'm about to tear up thinking about it because she was taken advantage of. She is super smart. She is hilarious. Yes. She's funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, she is really, really funny. And it was like nobody cared about any of that. There's one, she did this one interview on a red carpet where someone said to her, all all these all the boys are obsessed with you and she shrugs and she goes i don't know why <laughs> she is she very much like jennifer she is so self-aware of her sexuality yeah and people hate women like that yep i mean like the same thing happened with marilyn monroe oh yeah which is also really interesting because for a while megan fox had a tattoo of marilyn monroe on her arm oh yeah i remember that and she very very recently got it removed and she said that she got it removed because she didn't want to end up like her so consumed by the media's um and and society's views of her mm-hmm. that she like she died because yeah. of it basically yeah. and so megan fox was like i don't want to become that i don't want to idolize that part of it and that i thought was really interesting hearing about that how she was like i am in the same place that marilyn monroe was in where i am i'm a, i'm very pretty but I'm also really funny and I'm also and Marilyn Monroe is really funny too mm-hmm. and really smart. Same thing. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe was super funny, super smart, super pretty. And Megan Fox is the same. But Megan Fox was saying how she doesn't want to fall down that path of self-destruction because nobody sees that side of her. And I think everyone on planet Earth owes Megan Fox a big old apology. I do too. Yes, she has a gorgeous heart and she has been taken advantage of by Hollywood and everyone else. And we should all feel ashamed, truly. No, really. Really. Uh, I mean, uh, we all should. (laughs) Because I don't think anybody has gone through life thinking, oh, that's the girl from Transformers. Yep. I think we've all had that thought at least once. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, um... That's on us and Megan Fox. I know you're not listening to this. <laughs> but if but by chance throw, you are. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out into the ether that we are all very sorry for how yeah. you were treated. Because it sucks. So let's get into our final thought. Jennifer's body redeemed. According to IndieWire, Fox offered her assessment of the film and its renaissance during an, an appearance on Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut podcast she said quote it's a nice circle i didn't expect it to grow like that but to see it being appreciated now obviously makes me feel really good i'm happy for diablo and i'm happy for corinne all of these people put in a lot of work into making a really quality project that was panned for reasons that had nothing to do with them she said a lot of it was just about my image at the time and who i was in the media at the time and the backlash to that the movie never really stood a chance unquote wow that fucking sucks yeah seriously 
According to Valeska Hexpot, quote, the original trailer painted the film as a salacious sex romp filmed for the male gaze, admitting recognition of the deep and painfully intimate relationship between the two girls. It actually took me years to give the film a chance because of this marketing approach. I too believed that the film could hold nothing for me. I was wrong. We were all wrong, unquote. Uh, you know, and this is why... <laughs> Like we talked about, I didn't watch it for the longest time. And then someone said to me, um, actually, the person that I had mentioned before, like, nobody got it. It just went over everyone's head. And it's not supposed to be an ignorant teen slasher. It means so much more than that. And, mm -hmm. like, I totally get that now. I even sent you a text after watching mm -hmm. it. And I was like... It, that was amazing and I appreciate it so much more now than I did when I was younger like I feel yeah. like it should be required viewing for teens but I think that it lands more with adults to be really honest yes and I think Fox herself was worried that the film's subtler message might be obscured by misperceptions like mm -hmm. as she told the New York Times magazine quote the movie is about a man eating cannibalistic lesbian cheerleader and that pretty much eliminates middle america <laughs> it's obviously a girl power movie but it's also about how scary girls are with jennifer's body i want to say it's okay to be different from how you you're supposed to be i worry that that's totally lost unquote and you know megan it was lost for a little bit, but we're back and we are here for it. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I want to say, in case anyone didn't know, that Megan Fox is openly bisexual. Oh. Yes. And so this is great because a bisexual person is playing a a bisexual person, basically right. a queer person. So I think just that representation as well is really quite great oh yeah definitely well that's it for this week's episode of good morning nancy we are almost done with season nine. Oh my god we have one more episode left oh my god i know then we're going on maternity leave again and this time it's abby's turn yay i'm so excited yes and while we are going to take a short break between seasons per usual i will actually be returning with guest hosts while Abby is taking care of her wee babe. So yes. I'll make sure you all stay in the loop. I don't think they're going to be as often as we do. I don't know. Maybe. I have to figure that out still. Just stay tuned. Yes. Um, but if you like what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on the show and without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And I just posted an update on Patreon about all the things that are going to be changing soon. Um, I'm going to be doing more reviews for Patreon. Um, Abby and I are going to be doing like commentary stuff at some point. Um, so we're going to be more active on there. It was a tough year. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh. we're definitely going to get back into the Patreon game now that things are starting to look up. <laughs> mental yeah. health wise yeah and now that we're finally friggin vaccinated holy shit oh my gosh yes <laughs> 
So y'all, if Patreon isn't your deal, you can show us your financial support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Our website is currently down right now because I it's under construction and we're making it beautiful and better than ever. <laughs> um, so I will post a link to our shop in the show notes of this episode. And yeah, check out our shop, get some Good Morning Nancy merch and have a nice summer with it. Yes. <laughs> Show it off. No, please. Show it do. off to the world now that we can go outside. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Ugh. And we know times are tough right now. So a free way to help the show is following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. Don't forget, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. Check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.